0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Skay, CEO of Carbone Fine Food. Eric has been in CPG for 30 years serving as the CEO of Rayos, and before that, enrolls at Naked Juice, Iceland Spring, Lifetime Vitamins, and Saratoga Water. He's one of the most well-respected people in the industry with experience in leadership, strategy, sales, branding, marketing, finance, and distribution. Hi, Eric. Welcome.
1: How are you, Allison? Thanks for having me.
0: Very, very excited that you're here. People are going to be very excited to hear from you. Um, And I just wanted to start off with, you know, I haven't done this for the last couple of guests. We've kind of gotten right into things a little bit. But before we start talking about building a best-in-class brand, I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey. You've been sort of, you know, you've touched kind of every aspect of this business. And I'm just kind of curious how intentional you were. Like, did you want to make sure that you kind of got all of the functions under your belt? was it just a function of, you know, where opportunities were? And, um, you know, where did you start? How did you fall in love with it? And, you know, how'd you end up where you are?
1: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, I'm I'm where I am today, just circumstance and, you know, having, uh, having four kids and, and and a wife that I've been married to for 36 years. And, having the need to grow my career. So, you know, long story Long story short, and I, you know, it's a long history. So it's hard to cover, but I started with a, with a van and a truckload of water in Orlando, Florida. That's how I started. <laughs> it, it took me about three weeks to figure out that if I didn't get other brands, I was going to be in trouble. Mm. And I was lucky and unlucky enough to get Arizona Ice tea. Um, ah. when it and I say unlucky enough because I helped build the brand. But then they went to a bigger distributor right after I, I got the first 7-Eleven authorization ever mm-hmm. for, for the brand. 212 stores, figured out how to route it, walked into a 7-Eleven, and they said, sorry, here, you're losing the brand. Um, fortunately, wow. the water company wanted to buy me out. Um, I got bought out. I didn't make a whole lot of money. I didn't lose a whole lot of money, but I learned right. the business. Uh, called Arizona IST and said, just sold my business because you guys, the least you could do is give me a job. And to their credit, they did. Um,
0: <laughs> That's you know, great
1: moved me from Florida to Ohio I had never been to Cleveland in my life never been to Ohio in my life but you know it was a it was a nice start I managed three states firm initially then ended up managing three more and it was at a time when I went from zero to 500 million dollars in three years yeah, and I, I worked for I worked for a guy named Mike shot at the time and you know with Mike you either learned or you, you didn't you know mm-hmm. if you didn't then you weren't there but mm-hmm. but most driven individual that I've ever worked with and I learned a ton from him in a, in a very, very short period of time. Um, from there, I went to Hanson's, Call them, I should have, could have, would. And Mark Hall recruited me from Arizona to go to Hanson's as VP of National Accounts. It was before they came up with Monster. So I was there about 14 months, and I was really putting out these brands that were just tough to sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had an opportunity to go somewhere else. I didn't. And, of course, Mark came up with, with Monster about a year later. And mm. Rest of history. And I left my options. So... <laughs> uh, I went to a small company called Fresh Samantha helped scale that from three to forty five million in under three years. And that was the first time I really got involved in a big way in kind of the due diligence process of a company being sold. They sold mm. to a And I really that that part of the business intrigued me. Um but from there I had the opportunity to go to a nine company roll up and become uh I was pre- I was president of North uh, Ultimate Juice, which was a roll-up of nine brands at North Castle Partners, and I ran half the country. And that's where I really started getting like some P and L experience, being involved in a lot of due diligence and companies being bought because we were the first target bought. Right.
0: Um,
1: From there, I started a couple of my own brands after I left: uh, Iceland Spring Water and New Leaf Ice Tea. Exited in '09, but really forced because of '08. Like I I consider New Leaf my commercial success and financial. <laughs>
0: right,
1: <laughs> like, trying to raise money during that time when we had, you know, things going against us was very, very difficult. But we had a brand. I mean, we we're annualized at ten million bucks, and I yeah. could still cut those money. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I sold I sold Iceland Spring, which kind of you know saved me during the time. Managed to sell Iceland Spring, I mean, our newly to a public entity, which didn't necessarily save me, but but took a, quite a bit off my plate and some pressure away. Right. Um. Exited New Leaf in 11, and I started a consulting firm for five years um, called Bricktown, which is still an operating entity, just n- not doing anything in it, given, given what I'm doing today. But right. uh, With Bricktown, we did 45 projects. Uh, it was a small company. It was me, my wife, um, my sister, and one employee. <laughs> um, we had 14 clients at any given time from startup to someone as big as, say, Smucker right um, you know primarily so,
0: sales and strategy or co- covering the whole gamut
1: allison anything you wanted done right so i mean i put together food service distribution for some companies i commercialized brands for people i sold people's companies there's a you know the, if you're a professional and the sales is the sales are under 25 million and a banker won't touch it the sec has said you can take a fee we want they it's a no action letter essentially so once I learned that, I was like, "All right, if I can make money helping people sell their companies, I will." Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, if you're a five million dollar company, no banker's going to touch you. Mm-mm. But there is someone out there that might want five million in, in additional sales, right? Right. And I know I knew how to piece that together. So we actually did six of those in five years. Um, you know, but the, but the balance it was whatever you needed. Broker right. management would do it. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it was interesting. I learned a lot. It was fun. And then I got a call asking if I'd take the Rayo CEO position. And, you know, it was a tough call because I had spent five years building a business and the business was going really well.
0: Yeah. What was Rayo's looking like at that time? I don't even I mean, I don't remember.
1: So Rayo's, look, Rayo's is in great shape. The, the CEO prior to me was a really good shepherd of the brand. Um, she had been CEO from the beginning. She was a shareholder but there was a shareholder battle where four shareholders kind of forced the CEO out and we're looking for someone. And I was, you know, kind of the 20th interview and, <laughs> you know, Frank senior and I, Frank Pellegrino senior, and I, mm-hmm. We just kind of saw to I, Frank junior, and I saw to I, and we hit it off and I'm like, sure, I'll take this on. And, you know, I spent the first 90 days trying to settle the shareholder battle right. and I actually have a $5, Bill framed here because someone told me I couldn't do it in 90 days, and I did. <laughs> so they owed me five bucks, and that one's framed forever. Right. But um, I you know I really wanted to I wanted to run that company for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> yeah. so, when I got in there, while she was a the former CEO was a great shepherd of the brand. Um, there was a lot of low hanging fruit, a lot of opportunity to go grow the brand. But but then you know from there that was uh, ten and a half months from start to exit, wow. and then eight-month transition. And then I went to Popcornopolis thinking it would be a few years. And within a couple of weeks of being there, the founder, Wally, said, Eric, you ready for another sprint? Wow. Kathy and I have decided that we want to sell. And it was another exactly 10 and a half months from start to sale.
0: Oh, my gosh. And a year
1: transition. And then, of course, here I am today. I I decided that a startup was easier than uh, going in and selling a company fast. Right. (laughs) We'll talk about that
0: decision. But so going back to Reos for a second, like, so did they, I mean, so they, when you got there, did they know that they wanted to sell it soon or?
1: They did. They did. did. So like, you know, we, we had some internal things going on where I had to make a lot of change with that I, you know, I can't talk about, right. We we settled. Whatever happened in the past is in the past. Right. Um, but I had to make a lot of changes there. And my head of sales is a guy named Jim Marano. Um Jim's dad was one of the founders of Rayo. So he was driven and it was great having mm-hmm. that person in that key position. Mm-hmm. But we had, we had an attitude of someone you know and trust. And that's like, those were the people we bought in. So we had, a, had an agreement. If they were Jim's person, I had final decision. If it was my person, Jim had final mm-hmm. decision. Mm-hmm. And really unique reporting structure because Jim reported to me as my head of sales and I reported to him on the board.
0: Wow, that's so funny. That's fascinating. And was it always I mean, you know, the thing about Rayos is everyone talks they're like, well, there's Rayos like which was always significantly more expensive than other things on the same shelf and I think category leader for years. Um and it's it's kind of this like mythical Sauce in a lot of ways was it already in that position? Like, did they was it already there? And did they already were they holding on to that spot? I guess when you came,
1: I think it was starting. I I think you know, I think there's a premiumization of a lot of categories, right? And pasta sauce being one of them. We've seen it in ice cream, we've seen it in craft beer, you know, with craft beer and the beer business. So you know, if you look at a lot of categories, they premiumize. People are Mm -hmm. buying better. Rayos is kind of on the cusp of that, and they, they they drove. I mean, that's, that's where I saw an opportunity to do what I'm doing today is in the over $6 sauce, who is there? Yeah. Right. Right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and but but as I think about the growth, I, I did a call the other day with, with the Kroger buyer, you know, I had to commend him because I made the call on Kroger in 2016, you know, and it was about a $5 million business through the register. I want to say it's over a $40 million business through the register today, yeah. meaning the rail business. So yeah, you know it's incredible what what you know. I think myself, Jim Morano, and the team that I put together at Rayos, which was a fantastic team, we went out and told them this story, right? We were right. like, all right, you can't have it that three face things. We deserve thirty faces. right? And people would look like you, you know, like you had three heads until you did the math and showed.
0: Well, right, because the thing about it is, you know, it's also, I mean, it's such a private label category too. You know, like every grocery store has their has their tomato sauce, you know? So, you know, there's like, we always kind of pride ourselves on the fact that, you know, there, there's very little like, you know, Wegmans or, you know, Kroger chimichurri to compete with us. But, you know, there's a lot of hummus out there and there's a lot of tomato sauce out there. And yet, you know, I mean, do was it,
2: for me, it was just the taste.
0: It was just better. But
1: yeah, yeah. so you would, you would you would think that, right? But like I sub segment the category, and mm-hmm. most most of the private labels are in a lower end. Mm-hmm. Got it. But, but pasta sauce hasn't done what pasta did. Pasta, I think, I want to say it's like forty or fifty percent private label. Pasta right. sauce is seven or eight percent.
0: Right. It's a Pretty Yourself. small
1: number, right. even though everybody's got their offer.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, and then right.
1: it's, it's, it's also hard to make something really good. Yeah. Like, the cooking process. This is, you know, this is like, I, I could almost parallel the cooking process in our plant to the cooking process in a kitchen.
0: Yep. You yeah. know,
1: it, it, at Carbone. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Rayos could say the same today.
0: Yeah. And so that takes us to Carbone. So, you know, for those of you who don't know, um, I mean, it's like an iconic, you know, last 10 years. I don't even know. I don't even know what time it is anymore, but you know, <laughs> in New York, major food group. They have a couple of different restaurants. Carbone's known for a couple of dishes. What you know, they. I'm assuming that this was pre-COVID, although I don't remember. But they kind of knew they wanted a CPG product. I'm assuming they found you perfectly positioned to build it. Uh, is that kind of what happened?
1: I mean, I, yeah, I can tell you the exact story. And, you know, we did start talking pre-COVID. Um, uh, Jordan from Excel introduced me to Mario. She called me up one day and said, hey, they're thinking about a sauce and talking about it. Would you take an intro? I said, absolutely. Love to talk to them. And the reason I wanted to talk to them is my daughter's 25th birthday. Uh-huh. <laughs> she, was, she was living in New York. And I you said, what do you rest. want to do for your yeah. birthday? I was running, I was running rails.
2: Mm-hmm. And she said,
1: I want to go to Carbone. And I said, are you effing kidding me?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that was my response. Can't we just go to Rayos? And she's like, no. She, of course, she gives me like three days' notice. Right. So I remembered one of my clients was on the board of Parm, which is one of the major food groups restaurants. Right. And I called him and he was he managed to get me a reservation. And I remembered the experience. That's all it was. But the minute I got that call, I was like, yeah, I think I could build something on that. Because after the Rayo sale, I, I had a lot of restaurants and groups call me about making a pasta sauce Mm -hmm, i'm sure um i just didn't see it from a marketing standpoint when you when you do a dive on carbone and you get into the whole pop culture of of and the following that it has there's a lot there to work with from a brand standpoint right Love and built and you know i figured we could i figured i could leverage it so we started talking and you know it turns out they had already been talking to investors that they wanted to take the money from and they didn't want to be disrespectful to Excel, so they said to me, "They said, you know what? We're going to go out and look in our own network to see who we can find." Six months later, they called me back, mm-hmm. and they said, we went through our own network and kept on hearing your name. So I called Jordan and said, "Look, Jordan, I'm really intrigued with this opportunity. You have a problem if I do it if they're not taking money from you." And she was she was okay with it, and I thank her for that. Nice.
0: Um, okay, so. We're going to, I think what we're going to do is I think we'll take a break because you had a couple things in there about the bones of the brand and the storytelling, and then there's pricing and distribution. And we're just going to basically break it down because you have built a lot of best in class brands and you're clearly onto something. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to hear the um, the secret sauce. We'll be right back.
3: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones.
2: And I'm your co-host, Dara Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun.
3: Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium.
2: It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry.
3: With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind the scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape.
2: We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show.
3: Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in Calera media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29.
2: We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera, and we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world.
3: So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe. And make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram.
0: I'm back with Eric Skay, CEO of Carbone Fine Food. Okay, so a couple weeks ago um, on LinkedIn, you wrote a post It basically, I'm summarizing, but it was essentially the elements of a best in class brand. And you, you know, had some bullet points and, you know, a couple of us, several hundred, I think of us chimed in with other little things that we, you know, thought of. Most of the responses were like, and you, like in terms of an element of a best in class brand, which I thought was very sweet. Um, so let's just start at the beginning. You, you, know, you start with value chain margins. Um, we talk a lot about margins on this show because I always refer to it as not like how I built this, like, but how the F am I going to build this? And for every reason under the sun, it's just, I, I honestly, especially today, I would not advise anyone getting into this industry without really strong margins. Um, and yet for some reason, it isn't the most often discussed thing. And a lot of you know founders find themselves sort of in the trap of, well, maybe when I scale, the margins will get better. Um, but can you break down the way that you think about margin why it's so important? If there are any specifics around numbers that you know, you would say like this is the absolute minimum threshold. Um, I just want like the you know the next three sentences you have to share on margins.
1: Okay, so look to me, it's the most important thing, and the the, the W I I F M, which Mark Hall taught me when I worked for him back in '96 or '97 what's in it for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, you have to answer that for everybody. And it's your job as the brand to answer that. So your distributor needs to make a margin. And that's gotta be factored into your model. Your broker needs to get a brokerage commission and that needs to be factored into your model. And of course there's operating expenses and all of the other things that come come in. And at the end of the day, you gotta get a consumer to actually pull right. it off the shelf. So that's promotion and you know, advertising or whatever way you choose to do it. So this is an expensive business and the way I look, it, I approach it. So, you know, you mentioned something about making it up on volume and I don't necessarily disagree with you can make it up on volume over time. But if you're an early stage operator, you better know where you're going to make it up on a, on margin. So you mm-hmm. better have negotiated with your glass manufacturer as to what point you're getting a price break and your cap manufacturer, at what price you're to And build a bridge and show yourself and your investors Mm -hmm. that you've got a pathway to a profitable business. You know, rule of thumb, anything under 50 gross, I just, it's tough to get in this business for anything under that. Yeah. And strive for more.
0: for my for my D2C friends when we talk about 50% gross margin we're talking about after trade spend so i feel like in the D2C world they talk about gross margin like before ads we are talking about 50% gross meaning that your product margins like your cost of goods that whole thing needs to be closer to like 70% because then you're spending like fifteen to twenty on trade spend. Is that right? Yeah. That would be
1: that would be accurate, accurate in the D to C world. When I look at it for traditional business, 50 plus is where you've got to be. You've got to strive to get the you know to get to 60. A D to C model is a little bit different. And I would agree with you that 70 is the number there.
0: Right. Okay. And in terms of what's in it for me, I think the other thing is is that, you know. One thing that I've noticed lately is that brands see, I think one of the reasons why I love that you told the story at the beginning is because a lot of us have experience with like DSD distributors and those contracts are slightly punitive and they're a little bit hardcore and aggressive, right? And there's this sort of like the distributor is trying to somehow, you know, take advantage of the brand. And I think that that narrative actually does a disservice to the ecosystem that you're building. And what I like about where you come from is you've seen it where you built a brand because you gave them distribution and then they kind of left you in the lurch and you had no recourse. And that's why they build these things into these contracts,
1: right? Well, it's true. So that's why it's built in the con- contract. And I mean, here's the thing: I just talked to my team about this in a team meeting last week. Your distributors, your brokers, your retailers—they're all your partners, right? And if you don't understand their margin structures and the bells and whistles that they have in their agreement when you go into this business, well, you built the wrong business model. And if you if you don't have it built in, it's—I can see why it would be hard to treat them as your partners. Yeah. But they are your partners. At the end of the day, and sometimes your partner, sometimes you gotta leave your partners, right? Yeah. So if you're a DSD distributor and you gotta, you know, you're you're getting divorced, you know, the guy, that that you guy, get a girl, yeah, <laughs> ended up, they, they, they ended up helping you build that brand. They should get something. Now I have seen that some that I would say are probably too aggressive. Yeah. But for the most part, it's to protect themselves. They've yeah. got to. You know, every, everybody I've talked to that lost the, I remember having this conversation with Tony Haralambos. Haralambos was a VSTC distributor in LA. And we talked about his vitamin water payout. And he said, I don't care how much money it was. I would have rather have the brand. I had to rebuild my whole business.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, so the, the money's there, but it's not that, you know, every everyone who loses a brand and gets money would prefer to still have the brand.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think just understanding that partnership, you know, It's hard because we do. I mean, I I can tell you as the founder of an emerging brand, I feel like it's a perfect storm. Your investors are pressing you. Consumers are pressing you. The team is pressing you. Distributors, brokers, the buyers on the other. Everyone, you know, at some point you just start to feel like you're getting torn in 85 different directions. And it's very easy to start feeling like someone's doing something, you know? Um, but you know, I think keeping on reframing it as I have to build the infrastructure of this to be able to withstand that because it is just fundamentally part of the business and part of being in partnership with these different, you know, pieces of the pie, it will just make you less resentful at the end. Well,
1: well, well, look, it's, it's also like having a deep understanding of their business, right? And their business model and respecting it. Like, you know, they have to make money as well and they have to build a brand. And So it comes down to, you know, the partnership. Are they doing their job? If they're not doing their job, be mad at them. Distributor, your job is to get the product to the shelf. My job is to make that product and get it off the shelf for you. It's your job to get it there. Broker, it's your job to get me an appointment and get me in the review and then help me with the paperwork afterwards and then have some support in the stores. Yep. Rather, if, if they're not doing their job, then they're not your partners. Then, it, then that's a different discussion. Right. But if right. they're doing their jobs and you don't like their margins, well, you just didn't, didn't build your business plan yep. properly, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. Okay. Next element. Um, brands need to know what events and or promotions drive trial because at the end of the day, consumers need to be buying the product. So this one's an interesting one because doing analysis on promotions as a young brand, can be a little tricky. Um, We're also kind of expected to do them whether or not they have like any sort of long-term lift at all. But can you elaborate a little bit on like knowing what events and promotions drive trial, like how do you figure that out early on or how would you advise a young brand to figure that out early on?
1: I mean, it's it's so difficult, but what I see a lot of young brands doing is thinking that social and some of these other things are going to drive it. And, you know, you're almost marketing to, to no audience until you have product on shelf or have, you know, some sort of big kind of online presence. So I kind of, you know, when I get out initially, I focus on shelf space and I focus on driving trial through some some sort of offer off the shelf. Mm-hmm. I've got to get that consumer to pick my product up. Yeah. And I know we're not talking a lot about D 2 C here because
0: no, I'm in yeah. a heavy
1: I'm in a heavy glass right. type industry and it's a small business on it in, in that channel. Yep. Um you know I wish it was a bigger business. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh you know, so so I, I it, initially it's a lot of um it's just a PPR something that's gonna Catch that consumer's attention and hopefully you have something in your, your jar or your bottle that's gonna continue to bring them back.
0: Yeah, and so, I think, yeah, this this goes to I think the last couple of years, because it's been it's been kind of heavily focused on brand. I mean, people who listen to me every week have heard me say this, but you know, on some level, like you said, your marketing. If people can't get you easily at their local grocery store, but you have a viral TikTok, it's not necessarily going to translate to any sales if you're not, you know, capturing a lot of those, you know, a lot of that virality online, which a lot of us aren't. And then if you do capture it online, you're not necessarily building a repeat, you know, consumer as much as we all would like to think so. So it feels like there's just been a little bit of an overemphasis on brand building and maybe less of an emphasis on that, like on shelf, you know, you know, I don't know, boots on the ground, kind of what's going on with the coupons and the merchandisers and all of that sort of like shopper marketing stuff. Um, And part of that is because it's been hard for us in stores and resets have been weird and, you know, we've had a global pandemic, but um, it seems like, you know, we, that they getting out of the gate and focusing more on like, what's going to drive people to try it on the actual shelf of where you're at versus spending that money, you know, trying to create a viral TikTok might be a better use of early stage funds.
1: Yeah, I mean look, as I, I, I every situation I go in, I try to learn something from the people I work with. And when Popcorn Alpha was kept bought, we were bought by someone called Next Phase and there was a guy named Doug Corbett there. And Doug always talked about maniacal focus. And every time I use the word maniacal in my PowerPoints, whoever's editing my PowerPoints on my team takes it out and I put it back in. <laughs> and they take it out and I put it back in. Because maniacal focus is what's important. I launched carbon March of 2021. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're at twelve thousand doors. Right. I didn't think about a pandemic.
0: Right.
1: I launched Naked Juice on the East Coast ten days before 9-11. It was it was ridiculous trying to build a brand during that time. Ridiculous. But you know what? There's no excuse. You made a decision to build the brand. What do you want to get done? How are you going to focus? Where are you going to put those efforts? How are you going to focus on the 20% that drives it and forget about the other 80%? These are all hard things. Mm -hmm. They're hard to do because you get a lot of noise in this business. I mean, I I said to someone recently, I answer every email and every LinkedIn message. I, I really try to.
0: Yeah. I think I get a hundred a day. What you sure.
1: <laughs> I think I get hundred a day from digital people right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know? And and I think digital marketing, you know, after after having tried it a little bit, it is the black hole that I can't measure. So yep. like I don't do that. Yeah. I do stuff I can measure.
0: Yeah. So when you talk about you just said something, the 20% that drives it. I'm always kind of Confused about the eighty twenty. Are is that twenty percent of you know of consumers? Are they consistent, or is that twenty percent always changing? And that's why you need to just keep opening and opening and opening.
1: Well, I think it depends on the brand. I mean, I, I can tell you, Rayos when it's sold. I mean, this is public information. They've said it uh, in recent public banks. they had two percent household penetration when I saw that. Band.
0: Wow, yeah. really? Yeah,
1: pandemic drove it. I said, they had a recent report um, that talked about where the pandemic driven d- drove it to, and it's in double digits now, like low double digits, like eleven or fourteen or something.
0: Right, like five, I would have four. guessed like seventy.
1: <laughs> but if you have a brand like that, if you have a brand like your brand, David's, you don't have consu- you don't have consumers, you have fans. Yeah. Yeah. You have people that will come back. They rave about it. They buy it all the time. So like, you know, part of the 20% that we're trying to do is 1 million people buying my brand every month. And that's what I hear constantly. And, it, you know, it's important. I mean, I mean when I get back to that 20%, I get back to simplicity. I think about working for Mike Shot, And I, I'll say his name a lot. I say it in every meeting I have because I learned so much in the short period of time working for the guy. But we had a mantra at Arizona I C, And my team has a mantra. But the mantra was, what do you do at Arizona State? And he would say, "We put up, put it on on the shelf eye level next to Snapple in an Arizona identified rack. We put up three signs in every store. And we back it up with quality service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you couldn't say that, you were fired immediately, right? <laughs> right? So, like, if, if you think about it, it's very simple. But it was the same message everywhere. Yeah, the message didn't change. It was the same. Um, you, you know, simplicity is important. Yeah."
0: Okay. I'm taking notes. Okay. The next element, uh, taste. This seems fairly straightforward. And yet, um, I don't know. I don't know if it is. (laughs) But um, one thing I like that you wrote was, you know, and I've heard this before, you know, when you're doing R&D, don't A, trust yourself only. Don't trust your friends and your family. They're going to like everything for the most part make sure, and this does not have to be crazy expensive. We did this at the cooking school relentlessly. You know, we had A and B chimichurri and we had people vote. And, you know, if you vote, you get a, you know, cookie and whatever, like, but you don't only trust your friends and family. You got to have some strangers weigh in to give you honest feedback.
1: Uh, You have to, you have to figure that out. You know, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest of seven.
0: Oh, I have, a,
1: I have a brutally honest family, <laughs> so you know, particularly my brothers. So I just, you know, give it to my family, and I get great feedback.
0: No, I'm sure they're kind of like this, you know. I'm sure they're like, I mean, if I get, you know, I have five kids, and if one of my kids was like, "What do you guys think of this?" the others would be like, "This is crap." Like yeah, well, they would definitely give just, just to be funny.
1: But you want to get out to as many honest people as you can. I can tell you, you know, when when trying, you know, trying to get that carbone matched you know and developed you know we blind taste tested a lot of culinary professionals just try to get feedback from as many people as you can but as cheap as you can
0: right right yeah you don't need um i mean fortunately i think for us and also i guess for carbone to some extent like we had built in already fans um who were just really excited to be a part of what we were building They didn't know what it was. They didn't know how this was going to end up being in grocery stores, but they were pretty psyched about it. And I I also like when I was starting to think about launching the sauces, I was teaching at NYU and I also had a bunch of students that I was like, come over and do a tasting party, like, you know, just anyone who you can get that isn't close enough that they're going to lie to you, but close enough that they don't make you pay them.
1: Right. No. Exactly. Exactly. You, you got to somehow keep it blind, right? Like, yeah. You know, I, I I did it several different ways while while doing this, whether it be a triangular test or you know things along those lines. but sometimes you got to fool people too. Yeah. Uh, in, in tasting, so um, so we did. Um,
0: yep.
1: It's really really important though because think about think about you putting a brand on a shelf. Consumer is going to grab it if you have the right marketing and it looks good, and you have the right offering. But if what's in the jar isn't good, they will never come back.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. And I mean, the thing is, I think with co-packers and you know, again with the internet and all, and and kind of the fact that it was very easy for many years to build a brand online. I think taste. You know, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of kind of the same stuff just with a different, you know, box color on it. And I mean, I, I guess I'd like your thoughts on that. Do you, do you agree?
1: I would think so. I mean, but if you think about premium items, right. You know, no one, if you think about what you did do to put Haven's in, in, in its package, what I do to put carbon in a jar, it's much different than what most people would do. Right. Right? I mean it takes over an hour to cook carbon yep it's no different than, than and we're opening up number 10 cans of tomatoes I don't I don't mind telling everybody that because go ahead try
0: right exactly
1: <laughs> you know? uh, I to know. Me it's so to me it's so important consistency and taste is so important that the first year of carbon first 12 months I tasted every single
0: batch-hmm
1: and we shipped 187 thousand cases so <laughs> I can tell you it was a lot of batches
0: mm-hmm do you have like an orange glow?
1: <laughs> I, or? I, I, I don't. I didn't turn orange yet, but that was, <laughs> you know, that, was, that was 21. That was the number in 21. We've done a lot more. And, you know, now I, I'm not at every single production, but I'm at a good amount of
0: them. Yeah. And every
1: single batch is being tested.
0: Yeah. Which goes to one of, you know, I guess two of your other things, which is, you know, proprietary production, something that has some sort of moat around it or, you know, hard to copy. The the thing that I struggle with sometimes, you know, and again, people who listen to me, they know, like part of me feels like it would just be easier. I mean, I know that it would be easier to just have something that I then put in a Haven's Kitchen package. Like our 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 process is so crafty um that it can really it can be kind of infuriating a lot of the times because you're cooking but then you're cooling and when you're cooling you know people are watching it cool and you know special ingredients you know right now there's like a mirin shortage in the country like there's all of this crazy stuff going on um you know how do you balance out the you know, special crafted, small batch. You know, chef quality, best ingredients. Um, you know, because it's it's the ingredients, it's the production, it's it's all of it making it, with also guarding those margins and making sure that you're scalable. Like those two things are almost incompatible.
1: Um. Yes and no. I mean, it doesn't it just mean more equipment. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm serious. You know, the last last company I was involved in was very, very, the popcorn company prior to Carbone, you know, very, very uh, thoughtful about small batch and making sure every single batch tasted the same. Right. To a point without going into their proprietary business, but there was about, instead of one giant kettle that cooked popcorn, there was about 30 of
0: them. Right.
1: And they each made about four bags of popcorn, right? Right. You know, it was, and I'm, you know, I don't know if these numbers, I'm, I'm right, not right, right. the true numbers because I don't yes. want to take anything away from, from what they've done. But, you know, everything's scalable scalable and duplicatable with money, right? With money yep. and with engineering and with time and with thought.
0: Yep.
1: Um, and I think that's the, that's the thought. It's like, if you begin with the end in mind, one of the questions when you start is, okay, I'm doing this. How am I going to scale it? I mean they figured it out, you know, figured it out in craft beer, they figured it out in ice cream, they figured it out in a lot of places. We'll yogurt. figure it
0: out in my mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I think um I think that's true. I think it's just, you know, I think right now a lot of us are just feeling like, you know, I mean, I guess I'd like your opinion on this. You've been in this industry a really long time. Is it actually harder or does it just feel that way because we're new and we're all tired. You know, it feels to me like there's a lot of people saying they've been in this business a long time and there's just so much going on, whether it's like labor or ingredients, supply chain, you know, again, grocery stores, like the consumer, or do you not see it that way?
1: You know, I think it's a point in time, and it's the point in time we were in. You know, we talked about margins earlier. I started with margins that I thought were fantastic. And the the global supply chain shortage came.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know, you talked about the Amiran shortage. It was an onion shortage last year. I had to find Mm -hmm. my Copac runs. Right. And it cost more. You know, tomatoes have gone through the roof, and and I could not capture all that in price increases because then I'd lose my consumer. Right. Right. We've kind of taken it on the chin, but, you know, life's somewhat like an accordion. You've got expansion, you've got contraction, right? Yeah. We have, to be, we have to be going the wrong way for us right now. Yeah. I believe we'll come back to where it's expanding again and it'll be right for us. Yeah. And I think you just have to have that in mind. And if you understand your business and kind of know where you're going to get it, you'll yeah. get there. I mean, you know, that said, just think about Expo West 15 years ago to today and if I think about it to the first one I went in the nineties. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: lot more people, lot more, lot more tables in that show.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, do you think there'll be fewer tables?
1: I, eventually, I can't imagine that there can't be. I mean, you're going to run out of. I, 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 obviously, there's going to continue to be brands. Right. I just can't see how they go to five thousand boots.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting cuz you know, my dad always used to say like everything's cyclical and you know, he was a he was a bridge player and he played bridge his whole life and you know, he was always like, you know, winning's fun but losing is just like it's just miserable. It's just deep, deep pain. And you know, and he was like and you're just going to, you know, you got to figure out how to mitigate the pain right? Because the wins are not going to feel, you know, you're going to win and you're going to be on to the next thing. But the losses, you know, like you really feel those like, you know, in the gut. And if you're going to be a professional bridge player, or you're going to run a CPG company, your job almost pretty early on is figuring out how you're going to not feel every single loss. And just mitigate your pain as much as you can. Set yourself up for because it's going to happen. You're going to lose sometimes. These things are going to be part of your reality. So just shoring yourself up a little bit.
1: You know, I, I, I get it. I mean, some of this is just personality driven and, and how you're wired. Because win or loss, I'm on to the next thing within seconds. Right. And I don't. I, I hate to lose. Like I hate yeah. to lose more than I hate anything. Yeah. I've learned more from losing than I have from winning, without a doubt. I've looked because I've learned what I had to change, right? Yeah. You know, um, so I think when you lose, you got to be reflective of why you lost. Yep. And it also comes down to how big the loss is, right? Like, but you, you've got to really reflect on, you know, why you 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 lost, and make yeah. sure you don't don't repeat that mistake.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Right. You know, when when New Leaf, when I couldn't raise money for New Leaf, it was you know the days of when you just went and. Built a brand. So I put on 137 distributors and had you annualizing at 10 million bucks in a couple of years. And then I couldn't raise money. And I learned EBITDA really matters. And, you know, (laughs) raising, you know, while you're running is not a smart strategy because you don't know when the market changes.
0: Yep.
1: Right. So being ahead of these things, and I'll never make that mistake again. Right. Like, you know, now that mistake was, it could have been disastrous for my family if. I don't want to say if I was who I am. If my family was not who we are, right? My wife, my wife was the support who helped get us through that. I and mean, we it was tough. We almost lost everything, including our house. Like I had to figure out how to remortgage the house. I had to figure out everything, and it was a complete rebuild at 40. It's not not you know 40 something. It's not a uh, not a great thing to do, but it but it worked. It worked yeah. fine. I'm not I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying I learned from those mistakes, and we'll never ever make that you know that mistake again.
0: Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the fundraising environment in in sort of regard to all this, because part of this is like building right a, a best in class brand, but part of that is also what's going to help you raise money for that. Assuming that most of us aren't going to be profitable for a while,
2: mm-hmm. that
0: that money is going to have to come in from you know people who want equity. Those people want to see something that is going to be best in class. A lot of that, I think, you know, you I think you do talk about the story and the mission and the, you know, the reason why you believed in Carbone was because you had an experience that night at dinner. And taking that experience and building it into a packaged good that's in homes across America you know, isn't easy. Um, So I guess I'd like your thoughts on, you know, what you think investors, you know, what have you seen lights up their eyes a little bit? You know, where do you feel like, okay, I got them. And also a little bit more about, you know, mission and provenance and story and how, how critical it is for brands.
1: Well, look, I think the investment, I hate fundraising. So let's start there.
0: Oh, I Um, love it, Eric.
1: I've done it too many times. (laughs) I've done it more times than I can count, and I absolutely hate the process. Um, But, you know, like everything in life, it's a puzzle, right? So you have to have all the pieces of the puzzle together. So I don't think there's any one thing that drives someone. I think the the most important things, as I think about, about it, are dynamic leader, someone who really does understand their vision. And really believes their vision. Yeah. Um margins, which we've talked about and will continue. And if you don't have the margins, you better have a bridge that's defensible. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you say we're gonna get it on volume, like if someone says that to me, I will ask them questions. Right. And I'll know whether they're gonna get it on volume or not, because I'll know whether they did the homework. Yep. To see if they did it. So that that would be, you know, kind of a kind of a second, I think, element. Something special about the brand, I think's a the third element, but the fourth thing, and I think it's it's probably as important, if not as important as the others, is you've got to have a velocity story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you're brick and mortar growing, go inch wide, mile deep and build a damn data story. Yep. Right. I, I mean, I, you know, I started Carbon in the Northeast, but I took it out, I took it out nationally a lot faster than I ever anticipated I would, only because I had a data story. Right. And I had people calling me looking to expand. I would have kept it in the Northeast and, you know, natural specialty for as long as I had to, to build that data story.
2: Fortunately,
1: we built the data story, story strong, but that VPO number is something 10 years ago and investors 20 years ago weren't looking at. One of the most important criteria right now is what's your volume per outlet.
0: Yeah. Volume per outlet. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I'm, again, I'm, you know, just being honest, like I, our velocities are great. They're, they've been great. They continue to grow. They're super strong. And when I talk about them, I tend to get back, okay, but you know, what about conventional? What about conventional? You know, and it's a little bit, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, we're all trying to balance sort of like the distribution versus the velocity story a little bit. Right. And you know, I'd like to say it's good enough to be, you know, selling 25 units of chimichurri in Whole Foods a week. Um, but it's kind of not in a way, right? They want you to prove out that you can, you know, they don't expect you to do that, you know, in HEB, but they do want to see now everyone's a little bit weary of just being, you know, quote unquote, A Whole Foods brand or a natural brand, so you know.
1: Is there such? Is there such? I mean, like I know there is, but is there really such a thing anymore? If you think about twenty years ago, the pathway from natural brand to conventional to club was about a five-year roadmap. Right. Right. It's an eighteen-month roadmap. If that now. Yep. If you have yeah, and some people
0: are even launching in Target.
1: Right, not even, I mean, you know, but yeah. you need to you need to know how to take that natural specialty data story and put it in words and convince a conventional person to give you a shot. And then you got to work yeah. the hell out of that to get your conventional story. Yeah, like I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't advise going, you know, from the natural specialty sets the the five major conventional retailers across America in one shot. <laughs> you know, right? Not not a good not a good plan.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: but you know, you need to eventually figure out how you take that data story, and then if you decide, hey, we are just a natural specialty brand, well, then they're your partners, and figure out how you grow with the partners.
0: Right. What or a, I what mean,
1: can I do what can I do to make this a bigger right. business? That's your, what yep. your investors going to want to know.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay. And on that, like on that tack about that velocity story, there's also price, right? So. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you talked about premium or super premium. Um, You know, I was talking to someone last week and he was saying that, you know, in 2008, premium consumers, basically, they still kept price below taste and convenience. The latest sort of, you know, surveys that they've been doing, and this isn't the conventional consumer, this is the premium consumer, Is now because, you know, there's all this uncertainty and everyone's kind of like confused about what the heck's going on. Price is actually starting to matter a little bit more to the premium consumer, too. So I don't know what to make of that. You know, I think that was his way of saying, you know, you guys are expensive. Um, But. You know, I guess I just want to hear your thoughts on the difference between premium, super premium, how you're thinking about that when you're going from you know a whole foods where people are willing to spend more to a conventional strategy. You know, just your thoughts.
1: I think how you define a category. A, I think I, I think price is very category driven too, right? Like, so if you're a iced tea, ready to drink iced tea. You're not getting five bucks of a jar.
0: By the way, I just want to say, I actually intuitively was like, I think I'm not so sure about my category. So I'm glad to hear you say that because I didn't know what to say in response. So I just whipped that out. But great. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's category driven. But like when I broke down sauce, I look at sauce in three categories. I look at the 0 to $4 sauce. I look at the 4 to $6 sauce. And then I look at $6 and above. Mm -hmm. And that's how I break down the category, and it's how I explain the category to buyers, and it's how I talk about the category, and I talk about, and I know where I'm positioned within that category, and I know how far I can take that. that. Uh, It's just important to really understand your category and understand who your consumer is because, you know, look, while they're saying price is becoming a factor to the premium shopper, maybe it is. But that premium shopper's eating at home more. Right. And maybe not eating out out as much. So they don't mind giving themselves a treat.
0: Yeah. and, And I think, you know, that's what we kind of always come back to, too. Like our, I think I've said this before, but our fresh market buyer was saying, you know, people are trading a little bit from like steak A to steak B or steak B to chicken or chicken to fish. But regardless of what that is, they need something delicious to put on it, right? Like we're they might they might be seeing a little bit less prime rib going out the door, but at, at for us, the people who are like this incremental thing that makes other things taste better, um, you know. To me, I'm still obviously. I am, what did you call it? A dynamic leader who really believes in the vision. Like, (laughs) like, clearly, I don't know how dynamic, but I definitely believe in the vision. But I have to think that, you know, things that go with other things that make them taste better, um, you know, are, if anything's going to be sort of protected in an economic downturn, it seems to me like, you know, that's it.
1: Oh, I think it's really important. And, I, you know, having, having done, you know, had the opportunity to look backs of premium brands for years, right? They, most of them grow during recessionary periods of time for that reason. People, when they're eating at home, want to eat better. I mean, fortunately, the business I'm in, when you go away, from, you know, you mentioned three proteins, meat, meat, chicken, and fish. When you go away from all three, you go to pasta. Yeah. Right? So you really want to put something better on that pasta.
0: Yep. 100%. 100%. Okay. We didn't get to functionality, diet, lifestyle, um, marketing, all of that. I do want to ask you about team. Um, I know it's important. It's possibly, you know, when we talk about what a founder's job is, I always go back to, you know, cash, vision, team, in whatever order you want to put that. We're supposed to fundraise, we're supposed to keep those investors comfortable, we're supposed to have a vision, like you said you know, live and almost die by that vision. And team, we're supposed to build, you know, I always compare it to like pushing a boulder up a, up a mountain. And if everyone isn't like with both hands and both legs, aggressively pushing that boulder, it's just not going to get up there. Um, so You've led a lot of teams you have been doing this for a long time. I'd love just a couple words of wisdom on hiring, retaining, firing, you know, communication, whatever you got to give me on, you know, making teams that build these best in class brands.
1: So, you know, in the early stages, organizations like mine or yours, I believe in very, very flat organizations with not a lot of hierarchy. Uh, If I could go to no titles, I would. Uh, We're all the same. Everybody's got to be willing to do every job. It's important for me to make sure I'm putting round pegs and round holes and square pegs and square holes when I'm building the team because I like to run lean too, right? So everybody's got to be able to multitask and they have to be doing a job that they know. Over communication is important. I have a lot of of team meetings. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't yeah. over over team meeting, but you know, we have i have functional team meetings during the week where I have an operations meeting, a marketing meeting, sales meeting, I have a full team meeting and then I reach through and you know, I don't and and my team that reports to me never holds it against me. I call there I, I call through them and mm-hmm. ask other people, How are we doing? You know, yeah. what do we gotta get done? I spend days in the trade, but you know, a lot of it's leadership and you know, I think one thing I do really well,
0: yeah,
1: is I work hard.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I work really hard. Yeah, and you know, I, 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 you know, my, I hear from a lot of people. I outwork most people. <laughs> mm-hmm. When your team sees you doing that, yeah, and they see you doing it not because you're trying to sh- show off. I mean, we, we had the good fortune to launch Whole Foods. I set a goal to get to 200 Whole Foods. I've been to 100. Yeah, it's August, That means me going on a road going into yeah. a market and going yeah. to every single store and shaking hands. And, and I don't just walk in. I'm giving out coupons. I'm talking to people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. I'm, I'm working. You know, it, it all comes back. A lot of it comes to leadership but then picking the right people who then buy into that vision. And once you have it, you're pretty good.
0: Yeah. Well, sir, um, I. You know, a lot of people think you're the best in the business, and um, Carbone's lucky to have you. And I was lucky to host you today. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on.
1: Alison, awesome. thanks for having me.
0: Armin, as always, thank you for engineering. I am on the dot with my time. I just want to call that out. Um, and listeners, I am getting your DMs. Eric will be getting your DMs too. You know, there's a lot of good that comes out of like, you know, when things get weird. Um, Keep looking at your spending, keep making good decisions. You know, make sure that all of these best in class brand things that Eric just went through, that you're really being honest with yourself and applying them to your own businesses because, you know, these types of environments actually are an amazing time to build really great consumer products. And as always, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.